Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Last year, a major Vanity Fair story brought the issue of sex trafficking in the U.S. to many who'd never considered the issue. And the stories it told were centered right here in Connecticut. In that story, our first guest, Krishna Patel, an assistant U.S. attorney, told the magazine this. Human trafficking, the commercial sexual exploitation of American children and women via the Internet, strip clubs, escort services, or street prostitution, is on its way to becoming one of the worst crimes in the U.S. Now, we spoke with Patel about this issue a few years ago, and seemingly the problem has gotten even worse. Earlier this week, a father and son were charged with running a sex trafficking ring using New York City cab drivers. And Patel's office tells us that they've been involved in a number of cases of exploitation over the course of the last few years. She helped to coordinate a panel discussion at Yale Law School called Trade of Innocence that happened earlier this month. Now, as we heard on NPR's Morning Edition today, the Justice Department is taking the issue of human trafficking very seriously. Here's Attorney General Eric Holder giving a major speech on the subject yesterday in Little Rock, Arkansas. In this country and under this administration, human trafficking will not be tolerated and that a zero-tolerance, one-strike approach has taken hold, I don't think could be more clear. You can join the conversation. Do we need to be paying more attention to human trafficking, a kind of modern slavery that's right here in Connecticut? 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Or email where we live at wnpr.org. Coming up, we'll be talking to the Heartbeat Ensemble. They've got a new production about this problem called Project Turnpike, based on a book about the Berlin Turnpike. First, though, Krishna Patel is an assistant United States attorney. She's deputy chief of national security and major crimes. Uh, she joins us by phone today, and uh, welcome back to our program, Krishna. Thanks so much. So first of all, let's get a grip on how much bigger the problem is than it was the last time we talked. Back in 2009, this was a major issue. Has this problem gotten worse? Well, certainly our investigations and our prosecutions have increased somewhat substantially, and I don't know if that means that the problem has necessarily gotten worse or that our outreach and detection um, Attempts have actually just gotten better so that we are becoming more aware of these crimes and better able to investigate and prosecute them. In that Vanity Fair article that I quoted you from last year, you know, you expressed some surprise even from where you sit at, at the scope of this problem in the United States. Many, many people think about human trafficking. And when they hear those words, they think about it being something that is happening uh, in Southeast Asia, something that is happening in places like India. But it really is happening here. Maybe you can talk about uh, how it has moved into the United States or whether or not it's really always been here at the sort of scope that we're talking about today. I think that it has always been here, and certainly, you know, as a prosecutor now for about 12 years, um, in my own mind, um, that the change has really uh, been made, where I, too, is some, was someone who believed that this would happen overseas, and certainly, as uh, our laws have been put in place, and as we are seeing what we are seeing around us, uh, I do think that this is a problem that likely probably always existed. I do think that in its current form, um, perhaps the number one type of domestic trafficking that we are seeing is what we call the domestic pimp control trafficking. So pimps who are prostituting 
girls and women either using fraud, force, or coercion on the women or who are prostituting children. Certainly here in Connecticut, we've seen cases where the children have been as young as 12 years old. That is something that we are seeing so much of. You know, we are certainly being notified uh, about these cases much more. We are realizing that it is a far greater problem than I think anyone ever realized it was. And I think, you know, in terms of who we are as a people in our society, I think sometimes it's very hard for us to be able to kind of come face to face with the fact that human trafficking is not just going on in India or in Cambodia, but is happening in Bridgeport and in Hartford. And um, perhaps, you know, we all need to actually take a really um, harder look at what's happening in our own backyard or next door. Maybe you can explain exactly how this happens, how someone gets entrapped, enslaved in a situation like this, whether it's a child, a, a young woman, they just can't get out of. How exactly does this happen? Well, you know, if we go back to the example that I just gave on the domestic pimp, we, we do start to see a lot of similarities in these cases. Um, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the girls or women who are being prostituted have come from very difficult or vulnerable backgrounds on their own. Uh, they don't have a proper support system of any kind or any kind of safety net. Um, what we have clearly seen is you have uh, pimps who appear to be somewhat charismatic initially, uh, and they create what I really truly believe is a family myth. For girls and women who have not had a proper family structure, who, who would really want to have some kind of family, this is a man who comes, who offers some sense of safety, security, love, and very quickly, sadly, um, that turns into the proof of love is to go out and prostitute for him. And over time, um, you know, many of the pimps, particularly that we've prosecuted here in Connecticut, uh, they're referred to as gorilla pimps, those who use very extreme violent um, uh, behavior towards their prostitute, to, towards these girls who they prostitute, uh, to keep them under their control. And it is, it is to, to watch how this unfolds is so unbelievably disturbing uh, because the damage and the uh, physical and the emotional pain inflicted on these victims is so severe and so prolonged. We're talking with Krishna Patel, who's an assistant U.S. attorney. We're talking about sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. And if you want to join us, 860-275-7266. As uh, we heard earlier in the program and earlier on Morning Edition today, uh, the Attorney General of the United States is taking this very, very seriously. Is there a renewed push by the Department of Justice on this issue, uh, Krishna Patel? renewed. I think that, you know, there, it has always existed. Um, you know, we have spent, I, what I'll say, the first kind of decade since 2001, we've enacted the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. We've uh, implemented legislation. We've had to make some fixes to that legislation so we can at least begin criminal prosecutions effectively, which we think is a very important part of solving this problem, but by no means will eradicate the problem. We've spent, you know, this past year educating, doing awareness, um, uh, asking states to implement uh, legislation. We've, you know, worked very hard with establishing partnerships with our NGO communities, the medical professionals, the faith-based organizations. And I think what the push now is is to deliver on um, and to act to make sure that we are doing everything in a variety of different ways uh, so that we can eradicate this crime. You mentioned the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Exactly what is that act, and is this something that is on the books right now? It is. Um, so prior to 2001, for various reasons, we had some difficulty prosecuting um, the what we are seeing as modern-day slavery. And so in 2001, Congress 
put in place a fairly comprehensive piece of legislation called the Trafficking Victims and Protection Act of 2001. And essentially, when it is completely distilled to its essential components, it defines trafficking as any type of compelled work. Work, you know, anything of commercial value. And the compelled portion of it is when it, uh, the victim is put under some type of fraud, force, or coercion. Now, obviously, if you have a child victim, that fraud, force, or coercion is not required because a child could never consent. Um, so that is kind of the, the essence of the law that goes into place since 2001. There has been some amendments um, done uh, to that piece of legislation. And with that was a huge push initially to begin uh, an awareness and outreach campaign and recognizing that these cases are so difficult to investigate and prosecute. The model that uh, was tested out, which I think is a very successful model, is to utilize a multidisciplinary approach to bring in NGOs onto your federal task forces to work very actively with faith-based organizations, recognizing the victim is likely not willing to speak to you or willing to um, want to talk to you, even if uh, they are quote-unquote saved, that you really do need to rescue and stabilize and strengthen a victim uh, to be able to have them come forward and tell you the story of what's, you know, what's happened to them. And so, you know, we, this is what we've kind of spent the first 10 years doing, and now we really, you know, we, I think the push now is we really do have to deliver on our promise to, to try to end I, and I would just I would just assume one of the difficulties that you and other prosecutors have in in this realm is, as you say, getting people to to talk to you, because in essence, people are not only maybe turning in people who, as you say before, they have some sort of close emotional ties to or perhaps they don't want to give themselves up because of some sort of legal status on, on their own, because perhaps they've been involved in illegal activity. I, I, how do you protect people so that they are able to come forward and not face the fear of some sort of prosecution or deportation or, or some other retribution? So, you know, when we talk about um, foreign-born victims, uh, I think that you have so many issues in terms of, you know, r- recognizing and understanding. They come, sometimes they come from uh, cultures or communities where they understandably have a fear of law enforcement. You have language barriers. Uh, there's so many other kind of cultural issues of a shame of a woman who, you know, may come, who may have had to be, pro- you know, was prostituted forcefully and yet is, is going to have a very hard time uh, coming to terms with, uh, saying that to members of the community or, or even owning up to that because of the shame uh, that that she has been raised with in terms of her culture. What we do, um, we do have some uh, tremendous legal tools. We have the ability to provide a U visa or a T visa to a trafficking victim. That is a visa which lets them stay in the United States, gives them work authorization, actually extends services to them. And over time, that visa can turn into a green card and then citizenship. For the T visa, because there are always concerns that family members may be threatened by smugglers or other people, that visa also enables a trafficking victim to bring immediate family members to the United States. So those legal tools are there. Um, what is really essential and um, you know is something that we need to work harder is the, what I call the four issues that are always present uh, for any uh, victim of this crime, and that is there is a real medical need, um, psychological, emotional care. Uh, there's always a financial 
need, and there's also just logistical needs. Um, and these are four areas that any one of which can be so overwhelming in a case. But uh, in all the cases I do, all four appear to be present at the very least. And so kind of finding the resources, um, this is why your NGO partners are so critical to be able to try to, to, to bring those to you to be able to strengthen a victim to kind of go through this process. And so between the legal tools that are there to be able to keep them safe and recognizing that if they are, you know, prostituting and that's illegal, that, that they are not committing crimes, they are actually victims. It does become very difficult, though, when you have a situation where a foreign-born victim may have come in with a smuggler who, you know, she voluntarily breaks our laws, uh, comes into the country because she was promised a life of being a nanny or being, you know, a model. And then uh, over time, this individual uh, uh, victimizes her where she is moving from someone who did commit crimes to someone who really is a victim herself. And, you know, you have all of the difficulties and the nuances that kind of go with that when you are delving into a case to figure out what's really happening. I want to get to a quick phone call here, and if you want to join us, 860-275-7266, as we talk about uh, human sexual trafficking uh, with Krishna Patel, uh, an assistant United States attorney. Uh, let's go to Karen. Uh, Karen's on the line. Hi, Karen. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi. I live in Avon, Connecticut. Yeah. I'm Karen Herbert. I work with an NGO called Not For Sale Campaign, um, and I have been a volunteer for about three years. So, so tell us about your campaign. Well, the campaign is, um, for me in Connecticut, um, bringing, building awareness of just what human trafficking is. We call it slavery, modern-day slavery. Um, you know, there's over 30-plus million people in the world that are enslaved today. And, and if you talk to, you know, nine out of ten people have no idea that this is even happening. And so just to bring light to that, we speak in schools, uh, secular situations, um, churches, and we're pretty much all over just educating, building awareness, and then developing people um, like your, the last woman you were just speaking to, you know, sending people their way um, so that the action can be taken. I, I'm wondering, Karen, you, you talk about human slavery, and I'll put this to, to you and Krishna Patel. I, I'm always very interested in the semantics of things, and when we talk about human trafficking, it is a word that honestly doesn't mean a whole lot to people. I think of drug trafficking, but maybe people don't even know what that means. And is slavery a better word? Is that is that a more preferred word, Karen, for what we're talking about here? Uh, in fact, it is slavery. <laughs> it is slavery of our time. People think that slavery under, you know, back with the transatlantic slave trade, and, and, and quite frankly, it's, it's bigger today than it's ever been. There's more slaves in the world today than ever in our history. And it's a big business. Well, uh, Karen, thank you very much. Krishna Patel, do, do you uh, sort of follow along my, my logic here? I mean, in some, in some ways, do the words matter, what we call things? If we talk about a massive problem of, of human slavery, I think maybe people uh, sit up and take notice in a different way. I agree with you, and, and you know, human trafficking is the euphemism. Um, it, trafficking necessarily, when you think of the word, is it uh, what it's connoting is the movement of people, right? Um, if you talk about you know weapons trafficking or drug trafficking, it's the movement of people, and that doesn't capture the crime. It is modern-day slavery in its truest form. We're talking with Krishna Patel, an assistant United States attorney. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with uh, someone from another one of these, these NGOs she's talking about trying to solve the problem of human sex trafficking. If you want to join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can always email us where we live at WNPR.org, or you can tweet us at where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Over the course of the last few years, some major stories in the New York Times and Vanity Fair have blown the lid off of human sex trafficking in the United States. It's something that many people don't think very much about. They think it's a problem overseas, but it's an amazing problem right here in Connecticut. It's something that's uh, been told in these stories in Vanity Fair and others that are somewhat shocking. Krista Patel is an assistant United States attorney who's been working on this problem for years. She's joined us on the program before to talk about this issue. And uh, if you have questions for her about this, 860-275-7266. If you have read some of these articles, uh, is this uh, domestic human trafficking a surprise to you? We want to hear from you at 860-275-7266. Also joining us now is, is Kate Keisel, who is a New Jersey program coordinator and head of New Jersey Client Services uh, for the Polaris Project, which is one of these organizations that's that's working uh, to help solve the problem of human trafficking. Uh, Kate, welcome to our program. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here, John. Uh, what is the Polaris Project? The Polaris Project is a non-government organization whose goal is to comprehensively combat human trafficking. But I feel like we use this word comprehensive a lot. But what does that mean to Polaris Project? It means that we're trying to fight human trafficking from every angle. And to do this, we have a variety of programs that we're doing to focus on combating all those angles. So we have a policy program that's working on strengthening both state and federal legislation. We run the national hotline that's taken over 50,000 calls since its launch in December of 2007. We also have a training and technical assistance program that's really working to institutionalize the anti-trafficking efforts. And lastly, we have a client service program, which is, of course, my favorite to talk about since that's what I'm coming out of. And what we do is we provide direct services to survivors of human trafficking. Direct services like what? Well, we have a variety of programs, beginning with case management, and case management basically means we're working on a plan for each of them coming out of a trafficking situation. We provide housing assistance, medical assistance, pretty much anything you can think of when you're coming out of a trafficking situation. And once a client is stabilized, we work on larger goals. So that's going to be getting them into things like our photography, art therapy program, so that they can not only work through their trauma, but also develop a new sense of self-esteem and sense of self, which is something the trafficker has really worked to break down over the years. And then we work on getting them into educational programs and also employment opportunities that are going to help them become economically independent. So when people call this hotline, uh, how how do you gain their trust? I, I was asking Krishna Patel about this a moment ago. People sometimes are, are unwilling to talk to law enforcement because of some of the, the, the repercussions of that. How do you gain people's trust? Maybe you can talk, talk that through and then also talk about how you share some of this information and the work you do with uh, the United States uh, government. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I'm sure it was mentioned before that it is a long process to gain someone's trust. And oftentimes, you know, we do get direct survivors who are connected with services. In fact, we've had over 6,000 since 2007 that have been connected with services. But we also get tip calls. So we get calls of potential trafficking situations that law enforcement then will go and investigate. But in terms of a call specialist from the, the Trafficking Resource Center gaining trust, it's going to be offering resources and also also keeping in mind the questions that you ask and the type of information you're looking for. So you're offering services, but you're not trying to gain too much information because that can feel really uncomfortable at first. And that's the same principle that we use when we first start working with an individual. We get called out for crisis response with law enforcement, and many of these young women, it is usually young women that we're working with, have just come out of a very traumatic trafficking situation. So we're trying to really let them know the services that are available and do it in a way that's not intimidating and 
and is non-judgmental. I want to get to some phone calls here at 860-275-7266. We're with Kate Keisel from the Polaris Project, Krishna Patel, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, let's hear from Priya first in West Hartford. Hi, Priya. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi there. Uh, first, I want to um, thank both the women who are on the phone for the great work they're doing and the holistic approach. I think that's really important. But I'm wondering if anybody's trying to address the demand for these services by busting the johns. It's a great question, Priya. I'll put that to Krishna Patel. Well, I, we've had, um, you know, when it comes to cases, particularly in strip clubs or adult entertainment uh, facilities, we've certainly relied on our state and local counterparts for their state laws uh, regarding prostitution. And we've also even gone so far as to notify uh organizations like the State Liquor Commission about violations. Um, federally, it's a little harder uh, to be able to prosecute the John unless there is a movement across state lines. And um, But I do know that uh, there are different attempts being made around the country uh, for things like John schools where those uh, men who are buying, and it's usually men buying these services, are then uh, cited and required to go to a program where they begin to learn to understand what these girls have been put through to be able to provide them the sexual services that were provided to them. Um, and there's a variety of different types of uh, movements like that that have been started in different cities, different states around the country to begin to address the problem. But just so you know, for our part, we usually rely on our state and local counterparts who we involve um, a great deal in these cases uh, to be able to uh, prosecute or to try to deal with um, any one of these uh, individual cases. Because we're talking about a holistic approach here, uh, in looking at your title, Krishna Patel, a Deputy Chief of National Security and Major Crimes, obviously this is one part of the world that you work in. I, I'm wondering how some of the other criminal activity that quite clearly might overlap into this world uh, can help you gain prosecutions in the world of human sex trafficking. Well, certainly, you know, the traffickers are everybody from, you know, your individual trafficker to fairly organized criminal um, uh, groups. And so uh, those of us who, you know, have been involved in major crimes, looking at larger organizations, particularly when you have folks from overseas involved. So you have smugglers, you have coyotes, you have a lot of people in different chains. And then even here, if you have a very large organizational structure, uh, your work with other kind of major crimes, um, particularly organized crime. I'm not saying it's at all like the you know Italian family organized crime, but that all of those skills, when you are looking at an investigation into human trafficking, can be very helpful. And because what you particularly see for the foreign-born victims, it's oftentimes the trafficker is from the same culture that they are. And particularly with our organized crime, we've seen something very similar develop. And so working in major crimes areas on national and international cases can be very helpful to kind of break down different tra trafficking organizations or understand them better here in the U.S. When we talk about different organizations that you might go after, we had a call uh, asking about you know, going after the, the people who who are actually buying these services. Uh, Nick Kristoff, as I mentioned earlier, and others have written extensively about what happens in the back of magazines like The Village Voice and many of the weekly publications that are you know, right here in Connecticut and, and all over the country. Um, what is, is your role right now at the Department of Justice, Krishna Patel, as far as going after uh, publications that are actually advertising for prostitution in the back? Yeah, this is an area that is, is 
coming up a great deal. And uh, as you just indicated, you know, some of this is a very technology-driven crime. So what we used to see is pimps prostituting girls at casinos and at strip clubs and on the street. And now what we are seeing is pimps actually advertising them all through the Internet in a variety of mediums. And you'll recall a couple of years ago, Craigslist was the big um, uh, story. And I think even at that point, uh, then Attorney General Blumenthal had begun looking at it. On the criminal side, it can be very difficult to prove um, that a uh, that you know a any one of these magazines or online um, uh, internet sites knowingly is is letting um, the prostitution of children occur. Uh, having said that, I think it's very important for the community at large and for a lot of these websites to be notified that they are being used for this, and the morally right thing to do is to not permit this to happen. I want to go to another phone call here. Jackie is calling from Long Island, and you can join us at 860-275-7266. Hi, Jackie. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi. I, you know, I used to volunteer uh, GED uh, training in Queens, and I had come across uh, two girls. One of them was living with her pimp, and the other one was, um, I guess, sort of living with her pimp. But anyway, she, I asked her, I said, well, what was the first time you got arrested? And she was 15. She went to jail when she was 16. And my question is, how is it that a 16-year-old who is obviously, no no 16-year-old wants to be a prostitute, has to go to jail? Where is, uh, where is the, the, the justice in that? I don't understand that. And nothing happens to the John. Well, Jack, you know, it's, it's awful. I mean, yeah. what about child sex? Something has to happen with that. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for for your question. I'll ask Krista Patel first about about that, about uh, exactly what, what Jackie's asking about here. You know, is is arresting fifteen and sixteen year olds over and over again for prostitution? Is does does this make a lot of sense? No, uh, is the short answer. Uh, what I will say is. Um, you know, in my cases, when I have seen the level of control that is exercised by the pimp and uh, a woman com- commonly referred to as the bottom, it is not unusual that when they are arrested that they will give false names, false ages. They'll say they're 18 years old because they've been trained to do that. And if, um, you know, if prostitution is illegal and they've been caught, the, the police are now in a very difficult position of seeing whether they're willing to, to identify themselves as, as victims. Um, but what I do think is really important is for local law enforcement to uh, be trained on the issue, on this particular issue, so that they are asking themselves the question, is this an, a woman who is violating some you know, local or state law on prostitution, or is this a girl or a woman who's being victimized, and we need to probe deeper and ask more questions. Um, but because it is not okay for a 14 or 15 year old to be arrested and imprisoned for prostitution. And, and Kay Kaiser, you probably hear stories like like the one that Jackie told all the time in in the work that you do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children estimate that 100,000 minors are forced into the commercial sex industry in the United States presently, and we oftentimes hear survivors that we're working with that were arrested at very young ages. Now, fortunately, in New York and in Connecticut, there's safe harbor now, and safe harbor's entire existence is to protect minors that are being forced into the commercial 
illegal sex industry. And so what that does is it prevents a 15-year-old from being arrested. Instead, anyone who's under the age of 18 that's in the commercial sex industry is seen as a victim and treated as that. And so now with this piece of legislation that Polaris Project and other organizations are working to implement in other states, those minors aren't being arrested. Instead, they're being referred to services instead of to the detention center. Are there other pieces of legislation that that you're pushing for, other things that you think that either at the state level or at the federal level, uh, Kate, that would be helpful in the work that you do? Well, I think having universal safe harbor throughout the United States is essential. So on the federal level, the Trafficking Victim Protection Act states that anyone under the age of 18 in the, to the commercial sex industry is a trafficking victim, regardless of force, fraud, or coercion, right? So just your presence in that industry, you don't have the ability to consent to be there. So you are a victim. So we need to have that at the state level so that local law enforcement can use that. And when they're picking up young girls, they're viewing them as victims. So I think we need increased training as well for law enforcement, for community members, when we're looking at these issues, to see the victimization, to see the violence, to understand what pimp control really means. I think we have a tendency to glorify pimps in our culture, and really what a, what a pimp is at the end of the day is a trafficker. So I think safe harbor in every state is something that we're really working to strengthen. Um, Connecticut is one of the states that has an excellent piece of legislation pertaining to safe harbor, and New York as well. I want to get to a phone call. John is in Bridgeport. Hi there. You're on Where We Live. Yes, thank you. Um, is, what are the thoughts on a, an aspect of trafficking and prostitution, particularly of young women, um, that basically is left alone because of maybe there's a good deal of them that are underground, you know, within, like, the illegal alien community? I mean, is there anything that can be done with that without offending the people that protect illegal aliens? Mm. Uh, Krishna Patel? I'm sorry, I didn't uh, hear the question completely. John, can you repeat it? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the talk about, um, you know, Craigslist and all those, you know, newspapers that advertise their prostitutes, but that aspect of, um, you know, girls that are serviced by, excuse the term, you know, illegal aliens, it seems like there's a lot of, you know, um, protection against, you know, doing anything to offend illegal aliens, but then there's a great deal of women, just what I read about that, well, uh, prostitutes. And we talked a bit about this before, but Christian Patel, what he's asking about is, is about how widespread is this amongst uh, communities of people who, who are in the country without uh, documentation? You know, and this is probably the most difficult, the most often asked question and the difficult, the most difficult to answer, and that's because we don't have great data, and you're never going to have great data when you have a crime that is so um, undetected, that is so underground. It's very hard to get proper statistics. I credit Polaris Project a great deal. They have their national hotline, and I think through their national hotline, they really are able to identify trends um, of things. And so um, since 2007, we have seen, I, I, uh, I believe the total calls in 2007 were about 230 or so. And in 2012, in just two months, you've gotten over 3,000 phone calls on trafficking. And I think, you know, what we are also seeing through the Polaris Projects hotline and their numbers 
is domestic pimp control is probably the number one type of crime we're seeing, but we're also seeing the Asian massage parlors, the Latino residential brothels. And the latter two, you're going to have the undocumented alien issue. Uh, but what I find um, really um, uh, both saddening and yet heartening about the numbers is while the numbers have escalated and increased so greatly, I think a crime that is done, um, in, you know, in – it is so clandestine. It is so hard to detect. This is a crime where people are now coming forward. Survivors are coming forward. Uh, community members are coming forward. The amount of people coming forward because of awareness campaigns, because of outreach, um, it is really, I think, very telling. And so the undocumented population, I think, needs to know, and we need to do whatever we can to let them know that there is, there are not only services available, but there are legal protections, the UVs and the TVs that I spoke about, for them. And, you know, I think all it is is uh, everybody just working harder to make sure that we are better reporting this crime. Uh, a last question, uh, and I'll put it to you, Kate Keisel. We got an email from uh, Jonathan in Milford who says, what about legalizing prostitution? It's not that far-fetched, he writes. Nevada's done it, and, and obviously it's it's legal in other countries. If it was legal, uh, it would allow the industry to be regulated by the federal government in a different way. What do you think? Well, I think what we can do, you know, the larger question is what, what have we seen historically? And if we look at Amsterdam as compared to Sweden and trafficking levels there, so what we see in Sweden that happened was prostitution was in essence, the the individual, the female, is decriminalized, but the John and the pimp are criminalized, so you have the ability to actually prosecute them. And what we've seen are dramatically reduced numbers of trafficking in Sweden. This has been a very, very successful model that's being implemented in places like Chicago, and it's proven to really reduce trafficking, right? So what we're seeing is we're criminalizing the John, we're criminalizing the pimp, but we're not criminalizing the woman who's involved, because oftentimes it's just an extension of vulnerabilities of why she's in this situation, even if it's not trafficking. But on the other hand, if we look at Amsterdam, where it's been regulated, we're seeing that there are underground brothels that are continuing to traffic women. We're seeing trafficking levels increasing. And so I think that this argument of legalizing prostitution isn't going to fix the, the problem. We have this huge level of demand for commercial sex in the United States, but we don't have that many people who are willingly going into the commercial sex industry because it's inherently violent, because it has a lot of issues that go along with it. So we're seeing that if we were to just legalize, we're going to have all those issues come along with it, but in fact maybe implementing the Swedish model where we are decriminalizing the women who are involved in prostitution but still criminalizing the Johns would be my suggestion. Krishna Patel, what do you think? You know, what I, uh, I have to give the disclaimer that this is my personal view, certainly not the views of the department, but I am very familiar with the Swedish model, and I'm fascinated by it. Um, I know that there are attempts now around our country um, to to uh, find ways to implement it, and I, I like it. I, it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Um, I, too, believe that um, many women, while, uh, you know, we can talk about what choice truly means, but that there are so many issues. When you look at the num the age where a lot of women begin uh, in the world of prostitution, I do think that many women enter that world because of, of very vulnerable um, issues in their background, and it's not something that I think that we as a society want to encourage. Um, but, you know, having said that, I do think there are NGOs uh, who, if they were on the call today, would certainly say to you that, like uh, other things, women do voluntarily choose to go into this industry, and um, for them, that is a real choice. Um, for, you know, I think the trafficking that concerns me the most is the, the child prostitution. The, the prostituting of children is just 
not acceptable at any level. And I think that is where we have to make sure that there's no eradication. And anything that could actually increase that is something that we should not be tolerating. Krishna Patel is Deputy Chief of National Security and Major Crimes and Assistant U.S. Attorney. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Where We Live once again. Thank you. Thanks to Kate Keisel, who is New Jersey Program Coordinator and Head of New Jersey Client Services for Polaris Project. You can find out more at polarisproject.org. Kate, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And I should tell you that our, our caller, Karen, says that the Not For Sale campaign is having the Connecticut chapter's first annual Freedom Walk to be held at Miss Porter School on Sunday, April 29th. Uh, more information can be found on our website, wnpr.org. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about a project called Project Turnpike based on a book called The Berlin Turnpike, which has uh, obviously for years been the subject of many seedy stories about prostitution. Uh, we're going to be hearing a little bit from Project Turnpike and the Heartbeat Ensemble and from Raymond Bouchard, who wrote the book. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, our budget guru, Keith Fanna from the Connecticut Mirror, will stop by to update us on what's happening with the legislature. We'll also talk with an author who will be at UConn Law and give us some insight into what he believes is the next financial meltdown. And we'll also talk about how important play is for young people. The uh, head of the Alliance for Childhood will uh, be talking about a two-day creativity conference that's coming up in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Some conversations tomorrow for you, where we live, on air and online at WNPR.org, keyword where. Today we're talking about human sex trafficking, the problem that is across the world and right here in Connecticut. Our guests now are Cindy Martinez and Deborah Walsh from the Heartbeat Ensemble and uh, from uh, Project Turnpike. This is a project that is happening tonight at 7 o'clock at uh, Capital Community College in Hartford. I want to welcome you both to where we live. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. And also, Raymond Bouchard is here. He's the author of The Berlin Turnpike, a book about sex trafficking in Connecticut and the genesis of this project, Turnpike. Uh, Ray Bouchard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Raymond. Maybe you can start with your story, Ray Bouchard. How did you get into this topic, and, and what is this book about? What is in what is detailed in The Berlin Turnpike? I've been uh, working on the topic for about 10 years. This is my second book on the topic, and I'm working on a third now. Uh, this book focuses on a federal trial uh, that took place in Hartford in 2007. Now, you heard Christian Patel talk about the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. This is one of the first trials to be tried uh, under that law. The um, defendant's name was Dennis Paris. He had what he called an escort business here in Connecticut uh, involving girls as young as 14, uh, from local high schools, girls from Vermont, New Hampshire. And so it's the story of that trial and how it illustrates how this crime works throughout the United States, the crime of commercial sexual exploitation. And, and this is something, it has the, the title, The Berlin Turnpike. This is a place that we've all sort of known in central Connecticut as a place where this happens, and it, it brings some of these stories home. The, the fact that this is happening right now, Ray Bouchard, as we're seeing these stories in, in Vanity Fair, Nick Kristoff and doing what he's doing for the New York Times, it seems as though this is becoming a story that is actually coming home to where people live in Connecticut in a way that perhaps we haven't had in the past. Well, it's been here forever. You know, there's uh, it, the Berlin Turnpike has been around for 100 years. Uh, in my research, I found prostitution arrests going back to the 50s. There's today over 1,200 motel rooms on the Berlin Turnpike. But more so, I'm using it as a metaphor for how that Berlin Turnpike, or a red light district, if you will, now comes into our homes through the Internet, through every online computer, as you heard your former guests be, uh, tell. Well, so Cindy and Deborah, maybe you can talk about how, how the transformation happened from the Berlin Turnpike to this Project Turnpike. What, what, what are we going to be experiencing tonight at 7 o'clock? 
We are going to be doing a rough draft, a reading of our first rough draft of Project Turnpike. And in the beginning, I actually thought I was going to be writing a play about smuggling Asian women out of Hartford. And I met Ray. We met at a restaurant on the Berlin Turnpike, and he was pointing out where women had been sold to pimps just a few years ago. So it's a years of research and interviews and with uh, former, you know, women who are now in recovery, with former pimps, with uh, social service agencies. So it's, and we're asking the audience to help us really shape the story. Yeah, and Cindy, this this isn't an easy story. I mean, the Heartbeat Ensemble, what, what you do is you tell the stories of the people in this area through their own words. But these are some very difficult stories to tell, I can only imagine. Absolutely. I mean, we try to, our, well, our goal with this piece and all of our Heartbeat Ensemble main stage productions that we keep it as authentic as possible. Um, and so with this one as heavy as a topic already, um, we try to add some humor into uh, the, the script. And, and when you come tonight at Capitol Community College on the 11th floor at 7 o'clock tonight, you'll see one motel room um, and you see the woman coming in and out. Um, and you sort of see the life as it's happening, um, and, and you and we really worked alongside Ray and his book to really bring the play to life. Well, let, can we hear a little bit from sure. from, from the work that you hear? I mean, maybe you can say, if you need to set it up, uh, you you can. But uh, let's hear a little bit. Okay, just briefly, the action of the play follows a story of a new recruit named Andy. So she's beginning to realize she's on the Berlin Turnpike, and she's talking to one of the more hardened workers named Kaz. And Kaz looks at Andy and says, So your old man is the reason why you started using? My dad? Since he died, yeah. I couldn't handle it. It got worse. I started stealing from my mom, got kicked out. <laughs> You've got to laugh at this life to stop yourself from really losing it. I'm not doing this. You can keep on. I didn't ask to be here. I'm not a prostitute. Don't fight it. You'll lose. I'll call the cops. Call the cops. They'll let you out in a few hours, and he will be there waiting for you outside the courthouse, and you will go with him again. That's stupid. Why would I do that? Don't end up like Helen. Ask her what was done to her when she told John that she wasn't going to service him. Now put that phone down. What are you saying? Stick it out? Make the most of it? Do what he says? No questions asked? Don't ask too much questions. Shut up. I'm getting a headache. And that's my dresser. Close it. You too scared to run? You ever think of... How to get out? Every day I think about it. But he has everything of ours. ID, social security, birth certificate. Should I jump out a window, run in the middle of the street, beg someone to help me? What? That won't work. How long you been here? <laughs> Longer than most hoes. Ain't sloppy. Been around the longest because I keep his business professional. I ain't no street worker, he tells me. I'm worth more than that crack hoe on the street. Mm. Ray Bouchard, stories, stories like this that, uh, that they're reading, they're about their lives being in control of someone else. And that's really what we're talking about here, just the inability yeah. to get out of something that you'd love to get out of. It's called slavery. It's mm -hmm. called, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, John D. Rockefeller commissioned a report on commercialized prostitution in New York City. And the way that report, probably the last good report on this done, describes how it worked in New York City in 1912, describes exactly how it works tonight. The utter control these pimps have over the women and young women uh, in their stable of girls. 
and and how the only thing that's changed really is the marketing. You know, it's moved from the street corner now to the internet, uh, yet it still plays out every week in the back pages of the Hartford Advocate. Well, uh, Krishna Patel talked about the biggest problem that she sees is the the domestic pimp, mm-hmm. not the the cartel of somebody who who has a, a number of 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 girls. Yeah. I, how how have you seen this work? Because I'm sure you've seen both of these types of stories. Yeah, and I've seen far more of the domestic pimp. Uh, Dennis Paris uh, was from Connecticut. His brother was just arrested a couple of months ago for doing the very same thing in New Britain. His wife ran the business with him. She was a state trooper. Mm-hmm. So it uh, it's all domesticated. Uh, the vast majority of it is. Uh, but yet we hear this term uh, is a misnomer, trafficking. We think of movement. It really has nothing to do with that. It's about the force, the fraud, the coercion, or bringing a young girl uh, into this trade and making them their slave. And that, that control is an intentional addiction to the personality of the pimp. Deborah and I uh, spoke with a woman last night who was under the control of this man for seven years on the Berlin Turnpike and the things that she went through, the videotapes he, ma- he, he made of her, seven years, and she's still trying to recover from that years and years later. Go ahead, Deborah. Well, he's still bothering her from jail. Yeah, exactly. He's still harassing her. He's still trying to keep her entrapped. And she is not a young girl, and you know where the resources ra- is really trying to help her find resources so that she can stay away. And, and law enforcement does what? Uh, how does law enforcement get involved in this? You, you'd think, you know, you'd be able to go to someone and say, look, this guy, this, he's gone to jail. He's still bothering me. Why not? What's Here, happening? Here's the difficulty. People are not seeing women on the streets so much anymore, walking, actually walking the Burlington Bike on a street corner on Wethersfield Avenue. They're here in the uh, Harvard Advocate, and they, they're, so they're out of view. They're online. They're in a magazine called Extreme Magazine, which is published in Kensington, Connecticut, which lists escort services. So these calls aren't coming in so much. Police are not getting, unless they go looking for it, do a sting, which is very complicated and very expensive. Uh, then these arrests are not being made. So they're able to mushroom and explode online. The internet also offers complete anonymity for the pimp and the john. Whereas before you had to you know, wait for a day when the weather was good where someone might be on a street corner. Now it's 24-7. You don't have to expose yourself at all. We're talking with Raymond Bouchard, author of The Berlin Turnpike, which is the uh, a book that is about sex trafficking in, in Connecticut, and it's also the genesis of Project Turnpike, which we're talking about. A Heartbeat Ensemble is doing a stage reading uh, it's tonight at 7 o'clock, the 11th floor auditorium at Capital Community College in Hartford. Cindy Martinez and Deborah Walsh are here from Heartbeat. I, uh, Cindy, how, how do you want to uh, identify with these women as you're trying to create these roles? Can you put yourself in their place in some way? Um, it's it's hard not to. Um, you know, we we took in the testimonies from the Berlin Turnpike book. We've seen videos online, um, interviews, and we actually interview a uh, former prostitute in person. Um, and when you're script writing and you want to bring these voices um, to the to the audience, you the authenticity and and sort of the storyline and the arc, the character, everything has to be in line to to be truthful. And but, um, but, but even in just even just the section that you just read, there, mm-hmm. there's a feeling of if it was a movie, there's a feeling of wanting okay. to yell at the screen, going just just go away, just run, just run, just run, run away, run. and you must feel yourself doing that as you're watching these videotapes or reading through these stories yourself. Absolutely, and. Um, 
you know, it's just not that easy. It's so this this topic, this, these stories are so complicated. There's so many layers that it's hard to tackle in one play <laughs> or one movie, or it's just hard to sort of squeeze it all together and then have an ending. So um, right now, as as this draft is in place for this evening. Um, Right now, the ending is what it is, and you have to come out to see it. <laughs> um, but again, we're we're giving you pieces of these stories of these women lives, um, and we hope to continue to polish the script for our debut on uh, next spring, twenty thirteen. Yeah, I don't feel frustrated with these women, girls, and boys because I understand addiction, and I understand where somebody who has been so abused could. There was a line we have. I. I thought he loved me when he hit me. I thought that's what love was. So I really understand what drives someone to stay under the spell of that kind of abuse. So I don't feel any frustration or why don't you get out. What I feel is empathy and more frustration with the services that could be doing outreach and helping people. As far as services, I mean, we can talk about that in just the last little bit of time we have. Ray Bouchard, whether or not it's at the state legislative level or whether or not it has something to do with services that could be provided to people, are there things you think Connecticut could be doing a better job of? Absolutely. In fact, right now we've introduced legislation in this session, uh, House Bill uh, uh, 5504, which is an act concerning sex trafficking of a minor, to make the publishers of these escort ads, like in the back page of the Hartford Advocate and on Backpage.com, uh, criminally liable for the ads if, if the persons within these escort agencies, that's what they call them, they're really prostitution rings, uh, are minors. So we really want to work now. This, this bill's got a good chance of uh, passing uh, within the next couple of weeks here. So right now, that's something uh, we're doing. The Hartford Advocate has pulled down their online escort ads, and they're just in the print version now. Um, and they, re- I mean, every week. Uh, here's one I'm reading right now. Well, and, so go ahead. Yeah, we we are almost out of yeah. time, so I didn't want I didn't want to run out of time on you because I wanted to be able to say again. Ray Bouchard is the author of the Berlin Turnpike. Thank you so much, and thank you also to Cindy Martinez and Deborah Walsh. Uh, they're from Heartbeat Ensemble Project Turnpike tonight at seven o'clock, the 11th floor auditorium at Capital Community College in Hartford. Thank you both so much oh, for coming thank in. You. You'll hear more of this play tonight. Uh, Tucker Eyes produces our program. Katie Talarski is the senior producer of Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.